Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you think about the way that charities ask you for money, the way they frame it, what they're often asking for is the means to buy hungry people food or shelter or farm animals or cook stoves or whatever. But data has been piling up in favor of another form of giving, direct payment, which is to say cash, just handing over the money and letting the poor or the displaced go and spend it. It might sound crazy, it might sound risky, but more and more organizations are becoming converts. In 2013 and 2014, this sort of cash transfer happened under the supervision of the UN for a whole bunch of Syrian refugees who had come to Lebanon. Rada Rajkotia watched what happened, and she's here to tell us about this shift in helping some of the world's neediest people, particularly refugees. She's the director of economic recovery at the International Rescue Committee. Rada, thank you so much for being here. No problem. Thanks for having me. So what do you think has spurred groups that normally might have thought about giving food or blankets or tents or whatever else to refugees to say, you know, no, we're going to give cash. You know, I think at the most basic level, what we've learned is that it works. Giving people cash, um, you know, historically, people have thought we should define when people have lost their homes, we should, they'll need shelter, they'll need blankets. Um, And actually, with time, what we've learned is that um, people can really make up their own minds and are very capable of deciding for themselves what they need. And so actually, in many instances, just giving them money to do that um, is serves just as effectively. And I think what's taken a, a little bit of time to catch up is just making sure that it's being done responsibly, right? So I think that the typical fears that people would have are, you know, will people spend money on things that they shouldn't spend money on? Um, you know, are they going to buy, you know, bad food or be, um, you know, gamble it away, um, right. you know, or, or misuse it? And, and so it's taken a while to conduct research to be sure that people are really spending money on things that they need. And overwhelmingly, and perhaps unsurprisingly to many people, that we have found that really when people are in need and in some of the most you know, destitute situations after a conflict or um, following a big natural disaster, they really do prioritize the things that we would all expect them to. So they will prioritize shelter and housing and Um, food and water. So really some of those most basic needs. So if they prioritize those things, why isn't it more effective for a large group that has more effective buying power to say, you know, instead of everybody going out and buying 10 pounds of flour for themselves, which is fine, how about we go and buy 1,000 pounds of flour or 10,000 pounds of flour? We can get it at a cheaper rate, you know, we can buy in bulk and then we'll give it out to you. If people are spending the money the same way that the agencies are spending the money, why mm-hmm. give it to people? So um, traditionally, that is how aid has been delivered. So from the U.S., for instance, food would be shipped that was grown in the U.S. and then would be shipped to places in Africa or in Asia where there are food crises. And then it would be, um, after purchasing it from U.S. buyers, it would then be distributed to people who need it on the ground. Now, um, that's great for U.S. sellers Mm -hmm. of of food, but what it doesn't do is help local markets. So in those places in Africa or Asia where there may be local producers, 
um, those people are that much more disadvantaged because now they're not able to um, get themselves up on the feet because they're competing with essentially free food that's being delivered from elsewhere. So tell me how you've seen this actually work on the ground. Like, is there a place that you would point to that you'd say, here's a really interesting kind of case study of how this works? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at a place like Afghanistan or um, some of the, you know, some of the places where we've seen that kind of distribution of goods go wrong are, you know, Iraq, I think um, in the early 2000s, we saw up to 70 percent, you know, 50 to 70 percent of things that people were being given reappearing in local markets and bazaars. Right. So we were that process of defining what people want. And so giving them the food that we think they would want and and that sort of thing just didn't work. I see. So you're giving them rice and you end up seeing the rice being sold secondhand somewhere else. Yeah. okay. Because they're saying, actually, I don't want the rice. But, you know, if I can sell the rice and get some money, then I can buy what I really want, which is just another food item. Right. Right, right, right. So that's that's how it works when it goes wrong. I think when it works really well, um, you know, it can be incredibly empowering. So in um, Lebanon, in that same instance that you mentioned with the, um, with the big U- United Nations uh, refugee program, when 90,000 households were targeted, we found that people were overwhelmingly spending money on, um, on food, on water, on really basic items, some health expenditures, some education expenditures. But then what was really surprising and really exciting was some of the unexpected positive benefits, right? So we found that, you know, those households, that, that was Syrian refugees, and they were incredibly in debt. So they were about, on average, five to $600 in debt per household. Huh. And that's because they've really sold everything to be able to move. They're, you know, they've landed in a new environment, and so they're buying they're getting food on credit. They're perhaps renting um, accommodation, but without having resources to pay for it upfront. So they're in enormous amounts of debt. And so the way that they would typically cope with this is that they will all start working. So the parents will work in whatever kind of illegal fashion they can. Children are sent out to work. And we found that just by giving small amounts of cash, so you know, $100, $130 a month for maybe two months or three months, um, children, um, there were half the number of children who were being sent out. Um, so, yeah, it was That's really... That's a big you know, drop-off when you... It's huge. To give somebody cash, and I guess that means to them they can repay the people that they owe money to without exactly. having their, you yeah. know, 10-year-old do work. Exactly, and it's the decision between, you know, do I need to send my 12-year-old out to work or not, um, which is huge. I'm Karen Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Radha Rajkotia. She's the director of economic recovery at the International Rescue Committee. Um, one of the ways that you give out this cash, and and you have to explain it to me, is that you give people who are, say, going from Pakistan to Afghanistan money on their cell phone. So is what you do that you have like someone there on the border and they're like, what's your cell phone number? How can I text you some money? Right. Literally. Yeah. So people come across and we get assessments. So we understand who's in the household, how many people, um, how many kids do you have, how old are they, how many adults are with you. So we get basic demographic information from them and we get a mobile number. And when we get their mobile number, um, what's funny is that often, you know, in other places, 
people don't necessarily want to be found again because I think, you know, you're just going to be here to bother me and ask me more questions. And I don't necessarily, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't necessarily want to be found again and have to do more kind of surveying or questioning. Um, But here, because they're like they because they know that they're going to get a money transfer from it. They're very keen. And so what's great is that we'll they'll give us our their phone numbers. Um, and they will, um, and that way we can give them a transfer. But what's good is that then we can also follow up with them. So we'll, we can a month later say we can give them a call and say, "What did you spend that money on? You know, what, what, how did it help you?" And so from a monitoring perspective, to make sure that people are getting and using money in in sort of appropriate ways, we're able to follow up much more easily too. Um, when you think about your whole sort of career and ever since you started thinking about aid and how you should give aid to people and what helps them best, does what's happening now in terms of big organizations thinking really seriously about cash, does it feel like a shift to you in kind of the history of how people have given aid to other people? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's hugely disruptive and it's good. It's it's I think it's so positive. Um but it's also um, it's tough for agencies to catch up with that change, right? So we are so now for the International Rescue Committee, we've made a commitment that twenty five percent of our humanitarian assistance should be in the form of cash relief. It's forcing us to think about how we consider other types of interventions. Now you think you know food aid, for instance, that's been a cornerstone of assistance and and giving. For decades. Yeah. It's one of those iconic images that you think of from television, right? People being given, you know, whatever it is, rice, bags of stuff. Yeah. Like, don't waste your food. Someone in Africa could be eating it, right? right? Like, it's, like, it's, you know, it's, it's the stuff that we were told as kids. It's, you know, it's been part of the sort of iconography of aid and, and assistance for as long as, you know, as long as we can remember. And so now we're being forced to think, well, actually... Could we do better? If we just gave people money, could we do better? And Mm -hmm. research has now shown, yes, we could. Mm. It's more, it's as effective and it's more cost effective to just give people money. And so now it's forcing us to think about other areas, you know, and for us to question, okay, well, we think what we're doing and have been doing, um, whether that's in terms of, you know, giving people other forms of assistance. And what we want to be able to say is, you know, maybe training, frankly, some of these trainings that we do for for um, job searches. But it's actually forcing us to say, well, you know, should we be investing in all of those things? Would it be as effective if we just gave them the money and let them get on with it? Radha Rajkotia is the Director of Economic Recovery at the International Rescue Committee. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've got more about the shift from giving stuff to giving money on our website, innovationhub.org. And there you're also going to find some of the big studies that convince the aid community to potentially change their thinking. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.